Exit for Podcast Mutants, Magic, and Marvels is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things media, check out cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. And for all things X's for Podcast, check out X's for Podcast on Twitter and YouTube. Hey everybody, welcome back to X's for Podcast, the show where we take a look at Weapon X's, Wolverines, and Patches week after week through their many monthly titles. I'm Nico, and that of course means this is this year's All Wolverine episode. Every year I somehow manage to convince the team to do an All Wolverine episode, and it just gets more and more incredible every year. This year we have four awesome stories. We're going to take a look at the Marvel Unlimited Happy Holidays Mr. Howlett before turning our attention to the finales of Wolverine and X-Force, as well as the incredible three-part tale in X men legends featuring the return of just that veteran x legends first things first this incredible holiday story happy holidays mr howlett it just really blew my mind i thought it was so perfect we recorded it for the holiday jam but i just wanted to save it for something really special and we hope you guys enjoy it just as much as we enjoyed making it and if you guys like what you hear you might even like what you see so don't forget to give us a subscribe over on youtube and twitter at x is for podcast Hey everybody, I'm Nico. And that makes me Kevo. And that makes this an X's for Podcast HTML Holiday X-Jam crossover segment. Holiday party, woo! So we're here today to talk about the Mighty Marvel Holiday Special Happy Holidays Mr. Howlett Infinite Comic Number 1, with a mouthful, published December 16th, 2021 by the Eisner Award-winning team of Ryan North on writing, Nathan Stockman on pencils and inks, and the incredible Chris O'Halloran on colors. Now, this is not our first time covering holiday stuff. Kevo, you and I have done a lot of holiday podcasting by now. Yes, we love our holiday specials. You know, I think back on one of my favorite things we ever covered together, which was Rap Battle, which was a freeform competition rapping show. And I just want to be clear, I mean, gift rapping and not like yo, yo, yo rapping, right? Competitive gift rapping. It had to be seen to believed. And it is devastating that it is not currently streaming anywhere for annual holiday viewing. Absolutely. And it's something that, you know, we loved covering in all of its silly festivity. And that's kind of what I think we love about the holidays. I love the festivity of it. I love the sort of fireplace kind of holiday that it's become the, you know, huddling up warm by the fire and, you know, getting in from the cold. I know that that's not everybody's experience, but as Northeasterners, that's very much my association of Christmas is snow. And, you know, for neither one of us, is it a holy day, but it really is a time that we celebrate. Absolutely. Now, one of the things that we really love is holiday programming, and on top of the excellent holiday programming that Marvel put up on the Infinite Comics app this year, I just have to say, I am famous for my love, on this show as well, like everybody even on this show is tired of hearing about my love of cooking shows, and I have a million times done whole segments from Brooklyn Nine-Nine in excruciating detail, and that this, oh, it's true. And this year, there's a spinoff of Making It, starring, starring, I guess, but hosted by Amy Poehler and Nick Offerman, their competitive crafting show. And it's Baking It with Maya Rudolph, who anybody who needs to understand musical comedy theater just needs to look up Key Change by Maya Rudolph from the Michael Bolton Valentine's Day special. I just couldn't think of it. I just kept thinking Jack Sparrow. Ha! 
and Andy Samberg, and they punctuate each act of the show with a 70s, 80s, or 90s style variety number. And it's just one of those things where I can't imagine, I already can't imagine the holidays without this show. So yeah, yeah, I, I hope it gets a zillion more seasons. It's just, there's something really cool about bringing together the holidays and things that aren't so holiday. Like we strangely really love Food Truck Road Race with Daddy Tyler Florence, who is always so clearly stoned out of his mind. And, and so I'm here hot. for it. Yeah. Oh, and so hot. Such a big, thick, hot man. Oh, it's just ridiculous. And then you get to watch him eat a lot. Oh, it's so hot. And it brings him such joy. You love to see that when a chef, really, you can tell how much they enjoy food. Exactly. And they did a Christmas season. And you're like... How can you make driving around in a little food truck holiday? But no, there is something about the idea that we are all looking for magic and joy. Kevo, you know, it's something that you say about the holidays a lot. It really is this time of year is about coming in out of the cold. And I think that that's such a central theme and so much holiday programming is an element of why we love it. And something that we love inherently in programming in the first place is positive vibes and, you know, encouraging each other. We love reality competition shows where people are cheering on other teams rather than antagonizing each other. And I think because there are now so many more competition shows like that, it is easier to blend that with something like The Holidays, which is, as we've said, about coming together and supporting each other and giving. And it's really cool to see that. And, you know, I think that's one of the reasons you and I love to look at holiday media inserted into franchises we enjoy. It's no secret on this show that I believe that Melrose Place is a Twin Peaks-like nexus. And, you know, we've brought on some new voices in the last couple of weeks, including the brilliant TK, who has repeatedly stated that like new X-Men has great Melrose Place vibes. And I can't <gasps> really. Oh, it's oh, so good. Right? That's great. We're going to have a chat. Right. And, you know, Kevo, you are an exquisite librarian in a fashion. Well, one of the things that we first bonded over as a couple was our extensive and at the time far unhealthier than it is now obsession with television. We were coming into our obsession with TV and media in an age right between when there was no home video whatsoever and when everything was streaming and you can literally already find clips from Spider-Man No Way Home on YouTube. So we were obsessed with TV at a time where you had to buy these shiny plastic discs and we had drawers and shelves of these. And one of the things that I have always loved about having such an extensive media library is the fact that you can do these things like marathons. I loved looking into what shows had Halloween episodes, Valentine's Day episodes, and Christmas and the holiday season, whether it is that holiday, whether it is Hanukkah, whether it is New Year's. So many different shows uh, embrace and celebrate the holidays at one time or another. And, you know, you pointed to Melrose Place, which is uncanny that literally almost every single season of that show, there is a Christmas episode. Some seasons there's two, much like Ally McBeal. And another one where you don't really think, oh, yeah, Ally McBeal has a Christmas episode every season. No, it did. And, you know, whatever you love, there is probably something 
that embodied the holiday season in some way. You know, and the way you were describing it at one point where you were like the shiny plastic discs, I was like, yeah, I vaguely remember having to bend over and poke the droid and the hologram would appear. Wait, no, that's Star Wars. Wait, but Star Wars has a holiday special or two. And, you know, that's I love Lego and Lego has a holiday special in the Star Wars Lego holiday special. And And other ones on top of that. So you could probably make an entire Christmas out of watching Lego Christmas specials. And with the upcoming Guardians of the Galaxy Christmas variety special, I don't even know what it's going to be at this point. But like... Who even knows? And Hawkeye was vaguely Christmas themed. Yeah, I think it works in that die hard sort of way you know i know there is such a huge debate among certain people about whether that or other things that are simply set at christmas should count as christmas things and to a degree they should that doesn't make it something you can only watch at the holidays but you know People consider Harry Potter a Christmas movie. Why? There's like 10 minutes of Christmas in one movie in the entire franchise. But it's just part of the trappings, things that you don't necessarily think are going to be holiday themed. They become part of your traditions. And it's about what you make of the holidays. And it's how you celebrate this year that you have gotten through and this new year that you are entering and you hope will be better or maybe as good as the last year that you had. And I'm completely with you on just because something has holiday does not mean it needs to be defined by holiday. I'll have been alive for, you know, one twelfth worth of my life of Decembers, but I don't necessarily want to be described as that December guy. So like, you know what I mean? There's definitely a sense of there's a holiday element that doesn't make it a holiday story. But it's so funny because you talk about you can't figure out why people are like, oh, you know, Harry Potter is definitively a holiday story. I'm ultimately going to bring up a Christmas episode of Golden Girls. And what's funny is I'm not going to bring up my favorite Christmas episode of Golden Girls. Which is but, fantastic. Right? I, I need to point out that there is an episode of Golden Girls that I tend to avoid. I just don't love 1980s teach you a moral lesson through other people's suffering episodes. That's just not my shit. And there is an episode of Golden Girls called Brother Can You Spare That Jacket in which the Golden Girls win the lottery, put it in a jacket pocket and the jacket winds up getting donated and they have to chase it and it winds up at a homeless shelter and they realize they're so lucky they don't need the winnings fuck that i want my money but i always think that episode is a christmas episode because it takes place at a homeless shelter and it was so uncommon for sitcoms to do something like a homeless shelter outside of the holidays yep that i'd created so much context around this episode being centered at the holidays simply because in my mind no sitcom would have done something involving a shelter outside of that well and the thing is i think you're even in some ways conflating it with a different golden girls christmas episode which did take place at a homeless shelter or a soup kitchen rather and 
that even further drives home your point of most sitcoms didn't make any statement about the unhoused unless it was at a holiday to make a special feel-good holiday statement. I'm so glad you brought up the Golden Girls Christmas episode that I love a little less because it is that Golden Girls Christmas episode that I found wonderful parallels with the particular incredibly long-named Marvel holiday story we're going to be talking about today. Yes. The story is about how Wolverine is sort of a curmudgeon, and ultimately, in order to celebrate the holidays, which he outwardly has trouble doing, he goes off and works at a soup kitchen with Mystique. And it's because the two of them remember what it was like to be alive in the 1850s, and there's just some really interesting parallels between this and this episode of Golden Girls, where the four women volunteer at a soup kitchen on Christmas Eve, and they have to teach Dorothy's ex-husband, Stan, sort of the meaning of Christmas. <laughs> because he's a down-on-his-luck novelty salesman who is, was stuck on a shipment of Santa's driving fire trucks that didn't yeah. come out in time. Yeah, how topical. There was a shipping delay in his product, and it affected his Christmas economically. Yeah, and he winds up giving them to all of the kids of the shelter as Christmas presents, and everybody's really proud of him. And what's really strange is, like, the next season, inexplicably, Stan becomes a huge success for inventing a baked potato opener that he calls the Zborny. It's just bizarre but it's sort of the last major stand down on his luck story yeah and i feel in part that's because the idea of the struggle went out of sitcoms and we started to want to see people thrive a little bit more we you know and that sort of ties back into why i couldn't imagine them putting a homeless shelter in a an episode that wasn't christmas related And I think remembering those vibes really made me appreciate even more the way that this was presented as a sort of period piece and gave huge 90s vibes in terms of the character designs and the art. And I think that made it even more special to me the way the story ultimately shaped out. And, you know, we just discussed the... Mighty Low Marvels, and I kept thinking every one of them was maybe a couple of panels too long. And when I was reading this story, I get to that unfucking believably beautiful panel of Logan looking cranky with the beers with the Christmas tree behind him and the caption yeah. or dot dot dot. And I thought that had to be the last page. I thought it was going to be or me. And I'm a big cranky Wolverine. And I thought it was just a cute little super short. You know what I mean? Totally. I thought it was one of those like for sale baby claws never unsheathed. Like I thought it was a super super short story and ultimately that's just almost like a prelude setup like i would almost now expect that to be the digital exclusive story for free and this to be the regular for sale 399 issue everything that comes after it 
I found myself kind of beguiled by how much they managed to pack into each panel. You know, Kebo, I know you don't have exactly the same emotional resonance with these 90s designs and the sort of era that they're referencing back to, but there is a sort of joyful stupidity in the blindness that it represents maybe in my own life, having been a child at that time, or maybe in the treatment of real world issues in the pages of X-Men, sort of uh, an unawareness of the responsibility that these books ultimately become. But there's a joy in that opening sequence that I haven't felt since I was a little kid looking at Disney parades. Like there is something so magical in those first few pages that as soon as I read this, I had to get on Twitter and talk about it. And the creative team were kind enough to thank me for my words. But man, that opening sequence really enchanted me. It was reading a Chris Claremont Christmas story as a little kid. I really get it. I definitely see every note of what you're talking about. Now, you know, when you're a Logan fan, when you're a Logan fan, you have to kind of accept that you'll never be one of his protégés, but you can have a favorite, you know what I mean? And you can hyper-attach to one of Logan's protégés. And, you know, for many years it was all women, which, good. And, you know, we need more women in comics, and we've since come to realize that always having women in sidekick roles is incredibly problematic. So I'm glad that we've started to see male sidekicks filter in. So, you know, growing up, you could be a, a Kitty Pride guy, or you could be a rogue dude. You could be super about Jubilee or Marrow. And, you know, now you get to be about Quentin Quire and all the ways that fulfills me emotionally. <laughs> but getting to see Jubilee, this is, I think, so many of our youths. Kevo, I know your main access to the X-Men in the 90s was the animated series. So for you, I have to assume Jubilee was the right mouthpiece for which to focus the identity of childhood Christmas for Logan. I never watched the animated series as a kid. It was too edgy for me. My main introduction to the X-Men was the films. I definitely see what you are saying now retroactively with what I know about X-Men the animated series and definitely agree Jubilee as the through character to represent the X-Men and their Christmas party is brilliant and very smart with what we're saying about how it's giving such big 90s vibes. But personally, I didn't watch. I was more of a Spider-Man kid. And I think, you know, it's really such a fascinating part of superhero comics. I think from the outside, so many people just point in and go, oh, you like superhero comics? Okay, then you like superhero comics. But it's so much more complex than that. You know, you can be a, a spider guy and not an X-Men guy. You can be a bat chick and not a soups lady. You know what I mean? Like, so there's this real sort of birth that I think people don't realize how much comics really is its own universe. It's a lot like sports. If someone says that they like sports, you don't assume they've seen every single game of every single sport. So it's weird that people jumped to that conclusion for things like comic books. You know, and some people do love tons and tons of teams. Some people only love one team. It varies person to person. It's okay to like one sport. It's okay to like 13 sports. It's whatever, yeah. you know, fits your interest. I think that's one of the reasons that even if you don't have those sort of associations, I think this story really works. Kevo, as someone who's sort of 
and you know, I mean this attractively, but like thwarted my every like this probably worked for you because of your childhood. <laughs> as somebody for whom this doesn't resonate with your childhood so much as your understanding of other people's childhoods. Mm. How did this story, as it transitioned from the you know very '90s look to this magical sort of almost Willy Wonka cartoon esque interpretation of Jubilee sharing holiday joy with Logan? How did that play out for you? Oh, her little fireworks cartoons. You know, those were actually very interestingly reminiscent of the infinite comics that we were talking about on another episode, which are meant to evoke the style of Scotty Young and be very, you know, cutesy and cartoony. So I think it's really interesting that that style is finding its way over into this story. It really did, even for someone who didn't watch the animated series when they were a kid, I've seen it now as an adult. And so I think even with my limited understanding of Jubilee as a character, that really helped sell her being this like Christmas elf, basically. And I think, you know, they could have really made it a little bit too rough. They could have made Logan a little too hard on her and he wasn't, which I really appreciated. She gets fed up with him and walks away, but it's not like he ruined her Christmas or made her cry. And, you know, if you're going to have the character represent that sort of Christmas joy through that style of art, it's good that you didn't make him bring her down too hard because that that would have put us in a weird mindset leading into this story of him being so charitable for the season. Because I think there really is something to be said about the idea that he has trouble showing the emotional charity to those he loves in favor of sharing it with others. There's something kind of fascinating about the idea that Logan needs to separate his identity as Logan the X-Man from his charitable work, which, of course, is kind of a complicated thing in general because Logan does live a life of sort of dual excess he kind of you know goes full ninja monk i walk alone bub but he's also a hard drinking guy who's had a number of liaisons so it's not like he lives a sexless existence we know he enjoys a nice cigar because the comics code wouldn't let him so (laughs) there's you know he enjoys physical pleasures And, you know, we all know that he enjoys looking longingly at photographs. So I feel like it's not as though Logan only lives this sort of isolated charitable life. And I don't think this is out of character or weird. No. I think this really fits that sort of somewhere between John Wayne and B. Arthur character that Logan has evolved into. And, you know, as you're going through the thought process of the character behaving this way and I'm thinking to myself about how it fits with the character that we know and how you connect these two somewhat diametrically opposed ideas of a man it actually almost makes more sense in terms of if it's not just that if he was doing these things more openly he feels that he would be getting praise that it's not what this behavior is about but he would start getting things of well if you can be good why aren't you just good more because you genuinely need him to be the person who tears out people's throats and he knows that that's not great 
and he knows that there needs to be a balance. But what he doesn't need on top of all of that is you then telling him, well, if you can be good, then why aren't you better? Because you need him to be worse. And that's not a confrontation that he needs to have with the people in his life who would say those things to him. Because they would. They can't help themselves. That's what people who are too good do. They can't help themselves from being that way. And they won't ever admit it's that scene that we love from Modern Family where Cam lets Mitchell be a jerk because it means he doesn't have to be. And Mitchell is like, admit it, you're a mob wife. They want to be able to rely on Logan being this person. And I think that's a huge part of it, too, of he recognizes that he needs to make the balance. And if he was more open about that, people would come at him that he should be more good. And that's just not how the character works. And I think we, you know, we see that a lot with Punisher, who actually says stuff like, please don't act like you don't let me take out your worst trash for you. Yeah. And it's a really interesting thing because our whole thesis this entire episode has been taking non-holiday identities and wrapping them up in goodwill, cheer, and a stocking. And I think that Logan here is still playing that sort of Punisher Logan role, but it's wrapped up in this idea of the holidays. And I don't think it gets preachy. I don't think it gets moralistic. I think for the most part, what this story does best is it relates a holiday humanity to us. Mm -hmm. Logan doesn't learn a lesson. These people's unfortunate suffering, these people's pain, you know, fictional as they are on four panels, they do not teach Logan anything. Logan already knows how lucky he is. And this is a showing of gratitude from a grateful man, not Tony Stark learning for the first time that some kids don't get toys. And it's the knowledge that Logan comes with so much baggage that for me makes this story work so well. And I think a huge part of it is the second co-lead that we have yet to address very much. You know, we talked about Jubilee, but Mystique really is as much a co-lead in this as Jubilee is. And it was so important to include her character as a mirror or, or the other side of the coin that Logan represents here, where she is considered a villain, but she is also a person who is morally ambiguous, who has done good things in her life, and is someone who, in her ruthless efforts, probably does recognize the same way he does, that there needs to be balance. And she just as readily wouldn't tell the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants that she's volunteering at a soup kitchen, because they would consider it a weakness. Whereas she is someone who does strive to protect people who need it in her own way. It's just not a way that our heroes agree with. And it's it was so important to have these characters meet in the middle like that and to have her be someone who represents that. And, you know, you brought up humanity. It's, it's all the more important than that she was a character in this story as someone who so frequently is made to feel unhuman putting herself out there and making herself vulnerable to help other people at this time of year where it's so important and so many people need it. And it's really fascinating because what you said about Mystique, especially, you know, because when it just says years earlier, 
if you don't know her history and you don't know how to contextualize it based on the costumes, etc., you really can't know. And in her lifetime, Mystique has been a full-on good guy, and she's also been a merciless terrorist. And this is squarely in that, you know, exactly as you said, morally ambiguous, kind of a villain, recently worked with an iteration of the Brotherhood, but also recently kind of worked with the X-Men. She's in a good enough place to be near Wolverine without getting her head cut off you know it's definitely a complex character and what's going on in x-men right now mystique is very possibly about to execute someone who she shouldn't be executing and so this character mystique is so nuanced and so layered we're reading a very you know the fact that mystique is willing to do something kind for humans is not something that would happen on the page today so this story rehumanizing her reminding us why the cost of what she's doing is so great her you know mutant humanity you know in what she's doing in inferno this really goes so far to remind us why mystique is such a great character and i love that it's two immortals meeting it really reminds me of the sandman story where we are introduced to dream's friend of hop gadling and their characters who meet up once a century and i love this idea that whatever might be going on with wolverine and mystique in the actual current marvel comics timeline 10 years from that enough time might have passed for the two of them that they might be back to the tradition it's the nature of being immortal beings that this is something that they want to default back to to help make them feel (sighs) human's not the right word i can't think of a word that means not immortal other than i guess mortal like but connected yeah like like a living a normal finite human life connected to the brief flame that is most human life and just to sort of pull it back a second i think that sense of all of us that sense of this time is for that sort of fireplace feeling is why we retell a christmas carol a million ways why we come back to these sort of gift of the magi kind of christmas motifs why we can all agree christmas shoes sucks Ah. it's a, a certain kind of holiday magic and I wish in many ways that we as a culture could recognize the value in continuing to strip the holy out of holiday and make this time something that is a little bit less isolating to people who perhaps feel like those traditions don't apply to them. I wish that Marvel would make as big a deal about Hanukkah, which passed earlier this month uh, with little to no fanfare. You know, there's been so many incredible think pieces by so many brilliant Jewish minds about the importance of Kate Pride's faith in the last two years as she's faced resurrection and rebirth in a religion that does not particularly wish to embrace ideas like anybody can just get reborn. So, you know, there's a lot to be said. You know, one of our very own, Josh, is, you know, he's Muslim and where's his story? You know, where's representation of his holidays? So I wish in many ways that this story could have been a a more general winter cold holiday fireplace good time gas lamp but 
I feel as though this story is about as close to perfect as I think something can get in our modern society to give me those feelings. Like when Annie Potts sings, I saw mommy kissing Santa Claus in the second season episode of Designing Women, or a moment later when Meshach Taylor sings the Christmas song. I mean, I'm designing women so good but oh we have to watch those yes please and (laughs) yeah you know that's a it is a happy piece of a problematic time and we never need to go back to that problematic time since there are so many other ways to find happiness now that are just as valid and just as special but this really did come as close as you can to those exact feelings for me in a way that just elevated my spirit i really felt moved and touched and it was just hats off to the creative team for recreating my childhood christmas wonder we should be about moving forward in general but we should never forget where we came from and the things about where we came from that contributed to the positive aspects of who we are today and this encapsulated a lot a lot of that I think the most important thing to remember when trying to craft a holiday narrative is everybody's holiday experience is different. So, you know, in trying to create a specific story, you still need to remember a general feeling. And the story needs to be specific. This is about two immortals and only a way that two immortals could share this idea. It could share this, I, you know what I mean? Like it is so special. Exactly yeah. as you said, Kevo, that is Mystique and Logan. But the idea that we should always be grateful for what we have is a pretty palpable idea. And, you know, I'm so lucky that my husband wants to make my podcast with me. And I, I, like, it's a gratefulness I can connect with. I would like to reach into my pocket and find a, fine bottle of beer but that's not realistic my onesies pockets aren't that deep and i'm always with you how can i sneak stuff into your pockets i do anyway you don't pay attention uh i don't but until next holiday time guys i've been nico you guys can find me on twitter and instagram at nico action that's n-i-c-o-a-c-t-i-o-n and i am kevo really and you can find me over on the socials at kevo really k-e-v-o-r-e-a-l-l-y Hey everybody, Nico here again. Now this next segment, Wolverine 19, you know, there's kind of always been a Wolverine solo title since 1989, like some form or another, just a couple of gaps here and there, and we're about to come up on one of those gaps as the title is rebooting. But before that, we're going to have the 10 lives and deaths of Wolverine, for which I am very excited. Now we have some speculation about what that might be throughout this episode, but we're definitely excited to see where the title goes. Hey everyone, welcome to another segment of X's for Podcasts, where we talk about mutants, Marvel, and magic week after week. I'm Nathan, you can find me online at DazzlerWayOA on Twitter and sometimes Instagram, very rarely on Instagram, but mainly on Twitter. Hey guys, I'm Evelyn, the Comic Canary. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter, mostly on Instagram and not really on Twitter, <laughs> at comic underscore canary. I'm Josh Wheel. You can find me on Twitter at asleepatthewheel, W-E-I-L, and at asleepatthewheel.com. And from now until November 8th, as the progressive Democrat running for U.S. Senate here in Florida, you can find me across social media. That's Twitter and Instagram and a whole lot more at wheel number four U.S. Senate or at joshwheel.org. And and we're here to talk about an issue that has Logan washing up on shore at the end. We've got way 
tails trying to eat him. We've got so much going on here. Guess that means we're talking about Wolverine 19, brought to us by, of course, Benjamin Percy is the writer on all things Wolverine, it seems like right now. Javi Hernandez as our artist. Matthew Wilson is our color artist. VC's Corey Pettit as letterer. And Tom Muller still on that overall design. This is the last issue of Wolverine, it looks like, right? Before we go into finishing up Inferno and into the death, the many lives of Wolverine. Yeah, we get our red and white April promo page in the back instead of a December calendar. So that means we done. It means we are done. It means we are done, done, done. So I gotta ask, before we jump into this issue, which is to me a pretty standard Logan tale, what was your take on the series overall? When this story first came out, like Ben Percy is an amazing writer. I didn't really gel with his style at first. So X-Force and Wolverine really, for the first few issues, was I was kind of like, ah, like it's well done, but it's, it's, I'm not really digging it. But as we got into later stuff, I happened to love the vampire stuff. I loved Louise. I loved the camp of it all. And then we got into the Maverick stuff being wrapped up. And then the Solemn arc. I, I really got to say that it grew on me towards the end. I do not think Solemn became the arch nemesis they really wanted him to be for Wolverine. I do think the series suffered for Sabretooth being stuck in the hole the whole time. I can't wait to see what's going to go on because I've, I've really started to appreciate Ben Percy's writing style a lot more and I can't wait to see what's going to go. What about y'all? As much as I enjoyed it, like I really did enjoy it. It felt very discombobulated like with this issue. It was lacking a cohesive story where the individual issues were always really, really good and amazing. But as an overall story, it, it just felt all over the place, you know? Yeah, it might as well be like a Wolverine anthology series because, and, and there was something that he did in this particular issue too that kind of cemented this for me. You know, you could really take all those individual stories you mentioned, which were all for the most part solid. You know, I would say, you know, anywhere from, you know, B minus to, is there one? I'm trying to think off the top of my head if there's one I'd even give an A minus. Like they're all a solid B, like B minus to B plus range for the most part. They could really be told in any order. Like you could shuffle them around and, and it goes to you know the first issue open with Wolverine kind of pining on the fact that Paradise is making him soft and he doesn't want to lose that edge and Percy tried doing a bookend thing here in 19 by touching on that again except like some things work for bookends for me, that doesn't because all it did was emphasize the fact that we had no character growth or narrative movement, really, that like it was just kind of treading water with things happening. Like we got solid stories, but we're exactly in the same place we were at the beginning. We were. And I think for me, that was the big problem overall, especially in the beginning of it before I really kind of got what Ben Percy was doing. Like it seemed, whereas the rest of the Krakoan era seemed to be boldly going forward this wolverine series seemed really rooted in its past and like just in the past of comic book storytelling especially at first i don't think that logan got very much nothing new came out of logan from having this series like we didn't really get a new understanding of him maybe the only thing we got to see is him trying to surf bird on an adamantium surfboard which how does that even work <laughs> buoyancy is irrelevant on krakoa it is getting into this 
story itself. So I do love if you guys noticed they put on the cover, it is Legacy Wolverine 361. And so I do kind of I like the nod to the, the legacy numbering on it. Not that it's not that 361 is like a hugely important issue. But like, you know, it's legacy really nice. numbers give me a chubby. Because <laughs> you're like, boy, wang, wang, 361. I love my legacy made it. numbers. I do. I love I do love legacy numbering. But when you bring it in for Wolverine, it actually kind of makes sense because like this is really just a continuation of the 90s Wolverine series. And it helps so much because Wolverine has had so many freaking series that like yes. if you're digging through back issues sometimes and repeated writers like you're digging through back <laughs> issues sometimes and you're like, OK, wait, this is a Jeff Loeb one. So this has to be volume three, right? No, it's fucking volume four. Look, he wrote the yep. exact look. He wrote the same issue number in both volumes. Son of a bitch. Like or, you know, Jason Aaron's another one like that. Um, yeah, it gets it gets funky. And there's a lot of Wolverine stories out there. I like the cover art on this. We get this Adam Kubert, Frank Martin cover art that I have a son who has just been drawing. He just stops to draw sea monsters all the time. I have thousands of pictures of sea monsters that have like Kraken tongues with their own like snappy tooth mouth on each tongue. Much like with X-416 where him and I read that one together because he loved the Josh Kassar sea monsters. He tried actually taking this issue from me while I was halfway through reading it because he saw sea monsters and was like, nah, this shit's mine. It's interesting because we have a very different looking Leviathan. The art on the inside is very different. Javi Fernandez is kind of doing, it's a bit reminiscent of like David Aja's work when I think of like his work on Hawkeye or some other series in terms of, I don't know if it's the type of palette or if it's the, the, the real heavy lines on the inking with mixed with the paneling, but there's something about the overall feel of, for me, it is very, very reminiscent of like David Aja and different from what we've seen typically on the title. Evelyn, I gotta ask, because Josh made a great point bringing up all these crazy sea monsters and with your background, like how do you feel about the biology and all of this? And like, I gotta know your feelings. <laughs> so I immediately was like, okay, so, okay, so I need to bring up a little bit earlier in the comic to like explain my feelings. So earlier in the comic, we have um, him stalking this like deer creature. And that immediately made me think, what's going on? Is Krakoa making its own animals? Or is this a mutant? Did Wolverine just hunt down a mutant? That was my honest to God first thought. And so now with the, the Leviathan, I'm like, is this also a mutant? Is this also just some mutant person that turned into some Leviathan? That's my gut reaction. <laughs> we have Krakoan hyper-evolved fauna, I thought. Yeah, so like, and then it's like my other reaction is just like, oh, this is a really interesting kind of monster. Like, I definitely, the monster on the cover is a lot different and a lot more, just a lot more thought-provoking, I think, um, when it comes to like the biology of like, ooh, what's this kind of thing. But I definitely really enjoy the fact that Krakoa is what it seems like is it's affecting the different flora and fauna around it. And so by it affecting this like mutant whale thing that's taking revenge on humans, I'm just, I'm down for it. I'm down for whales hunting humans. Like we don't have any natural predators. Let's get some natural predators. We're always the apex predator. Like let's have nature fight back. I've always been a big like proponent of that in like media where it's just like nature's fighting back. Yes. So I was down for it. I was like, Wolverine, no. 
<laughs> if they don't want to get eaten, don't go swimming. <laughs> I love that Krakoa is whenever whenever we see more of Krakoa as an ecosystem, which I think Percy's the one that mainly gives us that because the other place we see it is whenever Black Tom's talking. The fact that I mean, we got clues that the tumors were really caused by the no places, but like this spells it out here like nothing else. That like the tumors that we've seen, especially in Wolverine and in X Force, are caused by the presence of the no place. So, and we get a little bit more clue as to the fact that you know we kind of maybe just thought there was Moira's no place, but there are a lot more no places on the island. And Inferno has taught us that only Doug and Warlock really know what's going on in there. So, what are our thoughts on? these no places actually causing this tumor reaction in Krakoa itself and do we think that the existence of these is going to cause some really huge implications for Krakoa down the line well so I mean biologically you know anytime we're talking about tumors or cancer because that's what we're saying is this is a cancer in Krakoa that is unregulated cell growth like that is your simple textbook definition of cancer unregulated cell growth and so you know how that that's what I think of like when I try to kind of like match this or, or reconcile this in my brain with like, is this cancer or is this like, it feels more to me like a um, immune system reaction to something mm. put in, right? Like this feels more like a immune system reaction to an implant okay. with the no places kind of being these implants that are inside of the Krakoan biology ecosystem than they are unregulated cell growth. I think the idea of Krakoan cancer and what that would look like would be wild. It kind of, there was an earlier, was it a Terra Verde issue, right? Where we saw them get infected by the plants and like what it was doing to Quentin. It was definitely one of the, oh my God, they killed Quentin issues early on. (laughs) But like, you know, that to me feels more like Krakoan cancer. So I, I thought this was kind of interesting what they're doing here with the tumor, but I'm not, to me, it feels more more like a, a recourse of the meddling of inserting a no place so that way you know the boys can keep secrets but secrets have consequences yeah for sure and what a lot of people don't realize is that the unregulated cell growth of cancer is a mutation in itself it is mutations it's um which shuts off the regulatory cell growth and so to me like what i would love to see is a little bit more exploring of the no places and how it's causing Krakoa itself to mutate and to have this tumor from it where not all mutations are good. I'm totally going to get this number wrong, but the statistics of a, um, I think it's 10 to the negative 23rd power is like every time that there's a positive mutation in a human body. So most mutations are negative. However, the human body has regulations itself to kind of stop the DNA from mutating and repairing itself. So from just a biology standpoint, I would love to see that explored a lot more with Krakoa and the ecosystem itself. And so that's something that I've been really enjoying. And that's been science talk with Evelyn. (laughs) 
Yeah, because the math on it is wild. Like, you know, I think when some people first, if they ever even encounter those numbers, they think, oh, so that's like a one in a billion chance that I would get this. And it's like, no, 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 no. One in first off, it's way more than one in a billion. But also you have to remember that, you know, you have billions and billions of cells. So like Mm -hmm. one in even one in a billion is, you know, like it's going to be that cell and your cells are turning over and recycling themselves so often. And, you know, everything that you do in terms of growth or move like you have there is so much there are so many copies of your dna in you that for one of them to have this like it like we all have it like we all everyone's going to get it but then you have the mechanisms for um as evelyn was saying the mechanisms for catching it handling it dealing with it and so forth catching it before you know if it starts growing catching it before it grows after all things like that even so like these things happen but they they happen in all of us because we are large enough ecosystems that the math like the, the math Mm -hmm. occurs it's not like a will we be the one it's how many ones are going to happen inside of us because we're Mm -hmm. so vast krakoa is beyond that like when you apply that math to the amount of cells that have to be across krakoa there are absolutely going to be like wild mutations and things happening in varying extents and degrees all across the board so uh, you know just the way the math works on that i'm kind of with evelyn like i would love to see that explored and realized as well too like more specifically so that kind of like a little bit more off topic but that kind of like scientifically then like you know if you're thinking more along that lines with just general mutation like the mutants abilities like do you think that the body sort of fights off some of the mutations and maybe like the body kills some mutants off in that way or would that not work that way okay i know this is an audio format so you don't see my face <laughs> just light up in like possibilities like <laughs> my jaw just dropped where Oh, that's opening a whole can of worms that I don't think we have time for. Like <laughs> that just made me so excited. It's like, ooh, what if that's true? What if that if the mutants that we have that some just die because they just can't handle the mutations that are happening in their body? Oh my god. Now that would be a really dark, amazing <laughs> like comic in of itself. I mean, we've we've seen that kind kind of explored in little tiny bits and pieces over the years like I think of Explody Boy and so you know discovering that mutant power and then you're dead and that's it um you know the idea that you know deleterious mutant powers or mutations for sure yeah in terms of the Krakoan ecosystem I love the idea of Krakoa and mutantdom evolving like from organisms into ecosystem level and the all new sets of rules and relationships and interactions that you have in there um I, I don't think we have the Percy books are probably the closest that we get to really exploring that like the only way that I can kind of in my biology brain think about it is like we were saying it's like our own bodies are its own ecosystem we have good bacteria in our gut and in our skin that helps us and occasionally we get the bad bacteria which we will have to get rid of but we have good bacteria and that's kind of what I'm thinking about Krakoa where it's this own ecosystem system and the mutants are these bacteria with their 
own mini ecosystems <laughs> that most of the time they're helping Krakoa, but maybe there's some that aren't so healthy for Krakoa that may be causing some problems. This is, like I said, this just a whole can of worms. <laughs> this this I, I, just made me very excited. <laughs> and I love the idea of, if, like, if you even think about it this way, like, this is basically the story that Ben Percy's been telling over Wolverine and X-Force, but, like, I love the idea of these new flora and fauna that pop up, that they're not just random flora and fauna, but their immune system responses because Krakoa is a sentient island. He's a mutant island. You know, mm-hmm. like just just the idea that this stuff is created by Krakoa as a it's an automatic response to try to balance out its environment is so fucking fascinating. And it, it is interesting and weird that like of all the books and titles that we've gotten, the place where we get to see this and ignore it is in the murder and like <laughs> black ops books yeah. are the ones that give us, you know, that really go into it. Mm-hmm. Originally, I likened this Wolverine solo series who think about it like more of a Western, right? Because I was trying to fit in the different titles to the themes. Like, you know, Excalibur was more obviously like the fantasy one. You know, X-Factor was the, the cop show, the, you know, the forensic science show. But like Wolverine always spread like, you know, a classic Western to me. Mm-hmm. And if you think about it, though, you know, Westerns are so in touch with the environment that they're in. And for Percy to actually make the environment of Krakoa such a big part of it is so amazingly like tied into that idea. Percy put a lot more forethought into the series than I really expected because he does have some running threads. It is it is basically an anthology, but like the running thread of this and X-Force has been just like the ecological impact of mutants and no places on Krakoa. So really fucking fascinating to me. Because Percy was troubleshooting here on this. And I think, you know, at some point along the way when we we're talking about this title, we realized that, oh, this is why we get so many fucking vampires because not all of us are big fans of vampires and mutant stories. But remembering that, you know, uh, one of the main laws of Krakoa is kill no man. And uh, Wolverine is the best there is at what he does. And what he does is not legal if you're a citizen of (laughs) Krakoa. So how do you have a Wolverine story where he's not allowed to kill anything? Where where he's not allowed to kill people. You focus on all the other things that he can fucking kill. And, you know, (laughs) vampires is an easy spot. But yeah, like giant monsters, creature horror, I think really allows us to go into a place that is with the depth of artists that they have in the X office right now I mean but yeah the way Wolverine handles the Leviathan in here I mean he does he loses an arm and I was kind of wondering about it we saw his arm get bitten and I'm like that bitch just bite through adamantium and then we see no like all that's left is adamantium skeleton and it like stripped everything else away but of course and and I, I've you know we're, we're 19 issues into this uh, well you know about 40 some of of Percy writing Wolverine stories here but across the two titles I love that Percy gets the way Wolverine fights, right? I love that Percy gets that Wolverine throws himself into battle in the most painful fucking way possible because his body can absorb the pain. And so, you know, of course, how's Wolverine going to fight the Leviathan? He's going to get fucking eaten and then claw his way out get him crawling up on the beach and pain and you know you get these like that's how wolverine fights wolverine fights in the way that is the most painful that where he absorbs the most damage and pain every time not only that but like to the point where it surprises the enemy like how far he will go like when you see like when he blows up the leviathan like this whale has this like or at least to me has this expression of oh no like (laughs) 
it does. Like it just has like like just an oh no moment, and then the eyes go wide, and then he punches out of the eyes, and it's like, uh, yeah, it's like yeah, like like what other character would even think about doing this besides Wolverine? Nobody would, right? <laughs> like who's gonna who's gonna try to get eaten by a whale and then bust his way out of the oh it's out of the eye that always kills me whenever they do that. Uh, but the narration that Percy does right there is like probably the most telling thing of what he thinks Wolverine is a character. Just the, but the hurt helped remind that I'm actually alive. He does this like masculine poetry kind of version of Claremont, this kind of like slightly more into the Hemingway feel. Uh, got some of that purple of like 80s Claremont Nocenti, but it has this kind of like Western cowboy lumberjack, like American masculine feel to it as well. That is unique and, and is a very good fit, like in terms of even though Wolverine's not American yet, it's a very good bit. I gotta say, like, that is probably my biggest takeaway from this whole Percy writing Wolverine is that he's really made Wolverine and other writers too have over the years. So it's not just Percy, it's just leaning into what's been done. But like, Wolverine really holds on to, over holds on to his masculinity. And it obviously caused some people to question why does he over hold on to his masculinity? At least I do like the way it has been presented by Percy it's he's overly masculine but he's not toxically masculine yes it's not insecure it's not over masculinity to cover up insecurities it is just this like redlining of testosterone and grunts and yes <laughs> like but i mean it's it's this interesting way that percy kind of gets the same way i mean i think you know we we, we mentioned his like lumberjacking like videos of like you know topless uh ben percy out there with like a ski cap on and an act like just fucking tearing into like big tree stumps and stuff like it's uber masculine yep but it's not toxic or like it's just this other cut like he brings that to wolverine as well (laughs) it's good to see because i think in the past when writers have leaned heavily into that heavy masculinity they've brought a lot of the toxic elements um and and percy has found a way to not do that and it might just be testament to like who percy is himself because other right yeah other writers don't know how to raise masculinity levels without going toxic like they just they they don't differentiate like how do you make more masculine have them call someone a faggot like that's not at all necessary no No. that is not no no (laughs) do this a thousand different ways without going there yeah, there's there's lots of different ways you can show leaning into your masculinity without going to that very toxic point. How do we think about this final issue as Josh mentioned earlier, as that bookend to the beginning of the series? How do we feel about that being basically the plot of this series? I think it's a little disappointing. I think that was probably the most disappointing part I had of this. I really liked it as a one-off, as a companion piece to X-Force 16. But the fact that for me, it, it just cements that we're in the exact same place narratively that we were in issue one right like the way that you were introducing like this character and what he's dealing with he has dealt with in no successful way he's in the exact same place like looking for things that he can stab and his one insecurity is that i can't be happy because it's gonna make soft mm-hmm. 
and and none of that has changed like by book ending it it emphasizes for me that there has been no growth or development along those lines whatsoever now Evelyn do you think Wolverine is a character that we can have grow I mean Marvel really likes to keep their characters static in some of these senses especially their their really big stars do you think Wolverine editorially is allowed to grow I think there's definitely growth available to him I just think that it's been so static in his portrayal that I think that there has definitely been some character development like just having him in the poly relationship itself and yep. is just growth got in a speedo yep. <laughs> and I think there's definitely growth available to him while keeping that like hard exterior and like the core values that make him him like having him being like yeah this this island is making us soft and that's very him to the core so I think that there's definitely a lot of room to have him develop a little bit more character development while staying who he is fundamentally I, I can agree with that I think my favorite thing that uh, in Hot Pock itself was like I think the first time we saw Wolverine in it like he was in a field like playing with the kid mutant I was in, just gonna mention yeah. that I was just gonna say that yeah and he seemed so happy and it, it seemed like he could enjoy Krakoa because it was a place where they could be happy so to see him sort of struggle with uh you know like it's gonna make us soft bubs it seemed very much like every season of the walking dead when they like find a place to live and they're like oh cool we can like breathe but this place is gonna make us soft so like you know it, it just seemed like maybe it was a storytelling plot that I, hickman was trying to go away from on but like it kind of got introduced back in and maybe i don't love that piece and i'd love to see that growth and you can always rewind it back when krakoa is done you know you can say like you know we lost this great place that we had and that would that would let those stories where he has to go back to still be hard even have even more weight the other thing is is that at the same time percy was telling this story that was one of your main themes over in tom king's batman as well like one of the main themes in tom king's batman was that you know particularly around the entire batcat story was that like she makes him happy can he be happy will that ruin him as batman like the entire amazing issue 49 the issue before the wedding was joker trying to kill catwoman because you're not allowed to make him happy you'll fucking ruin him for me um like that that entire idea that like being happy would make him soft he'd lose his edge like like is a similar idea like how core is that to this character do we lose the character if we lose that i don't know that it was explored as well on this side i don't think i think we we just kind of had it brought up in terms of Wolverine's own insecurity that like this is going to make me go soft in issues 1 and 19 but we never really saw him dealing with that like we never really saw him leaning into happiness or the threat that it might give we never saw him actually like working with any of that yeah, that would be a really cool side of Wolverine that we've never really gotten to see like we've never gotten to see Wolverine just be happy for more than like a night and then like whatever lover he has gets killed or you know like whatever and maybe that's just because he's had so many of those shit things happen to him that he can't yeah we don't get to see any of that really in here we don't get to see him on the moon here we're not even really seeing him playing russian roulette with daken at the green lagoon where he's at his happiness like or it feels like is around others like when he's not Mm -hmm. isolating like when he's with his wolverine family with you know laura gabby and akira when he's you know with his polycule with scott and gene you know up on the moon or on their 
their Shi'ar vacation or, you know, like those are and and Percy didn't lean in or give us really any of that in this title. Mm-hmm. No. Which I think would have been really fun to have. I mean, yes, it's an independent Wolverine title, but having some of those mo- other moments for Wolverine that show these other sides of him, I think could have really been an asset. Yeah, I agree. Agreed. I agree. I understand starting out and being like, okay, you know what, like just to reassure everyone, like, you know, you've seen, you know, Wolverine in a polycule and Wolverine rolling around with kids. Like we've still got gruff Logan here from the first couple issues, but you just went start to finish one through 19 and never touched on what I think is really the most fascinating and kind of prime new part of the sandbox to explore with this character. Especially like his family, like not even the polycule, like just no, the, the yeah. like his kids. Like, I think that would have just been like, that's what I want out of the future Wolverine, like kind of series is I want to see the Wolverine family. Like, I think that they're so dynamic and interesting and like you see the siblings are starting to get along a little bit and like other issues and so it would just be really fun to explore the dynamic of hey I guess I'm your father let's do <laughs> like I guess we should try to bond maybe and I want to see the awkward him. dinner where Deken brings yes! Aurora to like sit with Logan and meet him and like get to know him <laughs> yes. and Logan's like damn it Jean-Marie or like Laura bringing Everett and like Everett yeah. just like trying not to shit himself the the entire time like yeah just it would just be great and then gabby just bringing a friend who's just like what is happening no, gabby <laughs> brings jonathan gabby brings jonathan and has jonathan sitting at the table like he's a person nice oh she's yeah. like this is a table for wolverines he can stay <laughs> that i want to see i want to see logan lean into being a, a trying to be a good dad trying to repair those relationships yes. that's what i'd love to see any speculations on the 10 deaths like we didn't see anything like josh was saying like we didn't see any lead up to it like do we think we're going to get something out of Inferno, a direct lead-in? I'm really hoping that something happens around the end of Inferno that is like a springboard kick off into 10 Lives, 10 Deaths. I hope so, too. I hope he has to, like, maybe Destiny punches him into the time stream. That'd be interesting. I got, I was, okay, I was underwhelmed by Wolverine, uh, Black, Red, and, or uh, Black, White, and Red. I was, or Blood, or whatever it was. I was, yeah. I was underwhelmed by it personally. So I'm trying not to get my hopes up for this series because it feels like that to me Mm -hmm. okay yeah where it's just like oh we're just going to explore the history of wolverine more like we do every other day like (laughs) so i will be mad fucking disappointed if these 10 lives 10 deaths are not moira's 10 lives like i am I am completely mentally invested in the idea that we are going to be seeing Wolverine across the Moira life timelines. And if we just get like that time he was in Japan is one life and that time when he was in like, I will be like, God, I'll just be like Mm, cursing at my Yeah, Yeah. that would be an interesting concept. I'd like that. Yeah, that would be. That would be amazing. (laughs) 
Hey everybody, Nico here again. Now, this next segment, X-Men Legends 7 through 9, it's just so jam-packed with so many amazing things, and while that might have been one of our few critiques of it, that it's a little jam-packed, we had such an incredible time returning to not just this era, but these creators, and we hope you guys enjoy. Hey everybody, welcome back to X's for Podcast, the show where we take a look at Mutants, Magic, and Marvels week after week through their many flashbacky titles. I'm Nico, and you guys can check me out on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction, that's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And I'm Arturo, you can catch me at Mr. Toybox on Twitter. Twitter and Instagram. I'm Josh Will. You can find me on Twitter at Asleep at the Wheel, W E I L, and at Asleep at the Wheel.com. And from now till November 8th, 2022, as the progressive Democrat running for U.S. Senate in Florida, you can find me across social media at Wheel, the number for U.S. Senate, and at joshwheel.org. Now, one of the things that I love the most about this show is that because we take a look at such a wide berth of not just the Marvel line, but like sort of the sublines that fall in between, we get an opportunity to look at books that I just don't know why they exist other than specifically for us. And that's what today brings. We're here to talk about X-Men Legends number seven through nine. Now, this incredible flashback is brought to us by Larry Hama. And as far as I'm concerned, we are all title here. Never going to stop making Hama puns. We also have art by Billy Tan, sort of delivering the most likable Billy Tan I've seen in a really long time with Chris Sotomayor on colors, VCs Joe Caramagna on letters. And I'm okay. So first things first, I'm a big Larry Hama Wolverine guy. I that's, you know, the Wolverine I grew up with in comics. I know you're both really big 90s comics guys. And Josh, I know you are, you know, I can't wait to hear your reaction to the Hama Wolverine, knowing that that's a big, you know, run spree you're on. But Arshu, I'd also love to know your relationship with sort of 90s Wolverine, Hama Wolverine, and that whole kind of Logan is cool with kids movement that he brought in in the 90s. Yeah, I mean, I'm not a a completionist by any means, but yeah, I mean, just like you guys, I was there for the height of it in the 90s and Wolverine was the coolest and Weapon X came out and he's running around naked and hot and it was like Wolverine had so much allure. So I I read plenty of, of that Wolverine run. My other exposure with Larry Hama is through G.I. Joe comics, which are near and dear. So, yeah. Same. Big time same. Big, big same. And I mean, he's obviously most famous for his work on Kitty Pride, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. That and Gen X, where he really proved how he represented the voice of teenagers. I didn't know he was he, on he, either of those. You could just replace Steve Buscemi. Hey, fellow youths. War comics and high school. Snicked, snicked. Jubilee so young. See, I'm officially in the demographic where I don't even make those jokes anymore. (laughs) That just kind of calls more attention to things. But I do get what you're saying, though. Like, yeah, it's it's just very strange how Larry Hama so frequently got assigned to youth voices in the 90s. He wasn't a creepy, can't be left alone with females or teenagers type person, as many of the talents of that time would later be revealed to be. Like, he was not a garbage monster in a human being body, and so he could be trusted to, to do these without cringing everyone out which i think is really important context because lord knows as big x-men fans all of us have to you know contend with that all the damn time you know like all the conflicting feelings of you know whedon's run and lobdell and like on and on like ellis yeah yeah like it's it's not good so it's nice to kind of like appreciate the talent that didn't just do good work but were by all accounts great people you know i mean recently we all learned the the 
tragic news about George Perez. And, you know, it's it, the, the silver lining in that is seeing how much love and 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 appreciation from fans and, and from the industry as well just come out from. And, you know, it's not that I it's funny because, you know, I, I was younger than Jubilee in this book at the time this book sort of goes, you know, Jubilee's like 15 ish, 16 ish. And I was like six. Right. And I think one of the things is I growing up thought Larry Hama's Jubilee was like edgy and hip and cool. And there's this episode of Golden Girls in the first season where Blanche's grandson comes to stay with her and he's 14. And when I started watching Golden Girls, I was younger than him and thought he was kind of like a dumb piece of shit. And as an adult, now that I'm like three times his age, I'm like, yeah, no, that kid was a dumb piece of shit. And like, it's interesting how I think Hammer's Jubilee didn't age poorly. She just kind of comes off maybe immature. It's sort of that not quite blossom, so not quite a 45-year-old, 16-year-old, but not quite Molly Hayes, where, you know, she's 15 going on 7. It's it's really interesting how this Jubilee has aged well. Also, yes, as compared to, say, a Kitty Pride character that was explicitly written as being under 18, and, you know, only a few Our World Earth years ago from being in, uh, from being a literal schoolgirl in, um, was it, was it Schoolgirls from Heck? Chris Claremont's yeah. last story on Excalibur. Girl School um, from Heck. Girl School from Heck. And, yep. you know, and then the new writer decides, hey, you're like, we'll just make her uh, the sex object and girlfriend of, you know, the weird, boozy, middle-aged uh, British guy that I'm going to base on myself. Four writers later. That was literally three years later. That from was, school that was not enough time later if she was the actual age she was in girl schools from heck and she aged day for day in the marvel universe as earth time went by she still wouldn't have been legal by the time warren ellis took over excalibur agreed but that's actually a flaw in the fact that she was 13 in her first appearance that is a flaw in the fact that in her first appearance she literally sees the x-men in their underwear that is a flaw from the first day Kitty Pride appeared on page. It's not just that he decided to make her a love interest for an older character or that he decided to make her a love interest for an older character based on himself. It's that he decided to make her a love interest for an older character based on himself and explicitly put in script and make artists draw creepy lead up to sex moments where the, she was being choked and other things like there's there's a line and some people dance the line and Warren Ellis just drove fucking past it at full speed. Wow, I had no idea the extent of all that. Like I knew Kitty and Pete Wisdom. I've never been a Pete Wisdom fan. I don't care who wants to apologize for him. I've never been a fan of it, but I didn't realize like the extent of how deep rave. I mean, I make no apologies for Pete Wisdom. I just like literally can see where Xavier did much worse than Pete Wisdom to Danny Moonstar in the 1980s written by Claremont. Oh, that's so, a very like, low bar if we're going to start right, saying. So it's like, just sort of like I can't come at Pete Wisdom with that much fury without also coming at Magneto no. and also coming at Xavier and also coming at Scott. And there's so, you know, we've entered an age where, there, and it's something that I talk about a lot on the show, where we kind of have to like apply this weird sliding rule to morality. 
because stuff that played really well 20 years ago and you know arturo and josh you both made this this argument before you know for all the bad things we can say about peter david's behavior over the years and we certainly said enough of them during the x-men legends segment uh about his issues he was at the time very progressive and two-time glad award winning writer peter allen david yeah you know and it's like repeated glad award winner queer as folk and will and grace and i'm like really right but that's even the thing like i'm so glad that we're having this conversation and we're getting so passionate about all of this stuff because the one thing we can definitely say for sure the hama stuff not only aged well but it never goes anywhere ugly even today exactly and that was the point we brought up in our jay farber interview when we talked to him about generation x is that you know the larry hama and the jay farber stuff is really what holds up the best and and i think i tend to look at things at a more critical eye when it comes to teenagers because and especially 90s stuff with teenagers because when I read this all the first time I loved all of it as a preteen to teen like the 90s I was from 6 to 16 during that decade right. and now in the you know the year 2021 2022 I am a pushing 40 high school teacher and uh, my views on teenagers and what's cool and what's sexy are very different because First of all, big, bold, like, of all, teenagers are not sexy, nor should they ever be portrayed that way because they're children. And man, it, like, that completely changes and destroys rereads for me on a lot of things featuring teenagers from the 90s. Well, but hold on, because, like, I don't think that's even really realistic because, yes, it shouldn't be written in, like, a prurient way and, like, exacerbated, and there's definitely artists that are super guilty of that, and there's writers and there's creators, but something that I think Chris Claremont and Wheezy Simonson understood better than most is, and Anna Senti, I guess, uh, is when you're dealing with a cast of teenagers, hormones and sexual tension and all of that is part of it. And especially with the mutant metaphor and trying to get your powers under control and all of that. I mean, it's, you know, it's all laid out pretty, pretty straightforward. So there's a way of including that and it not being bad. And the, the Wheezy and Claremont stuff of New Mutants and X-Men really doesn't. It's not until we hit, I would say, Jim Lee era art in X-Men. And, and not that Jim Lee wasn't so bad on it, because I think he made a point of, you know, Jubilee had short shorts. And I'd say that was about, you know, the extent of like, you know, she was never made to be sexy or anything like that um she was understandably like the kid just a kid in the 90s um but it's that era of new mutants into x-force of you know generation x of where we start getting into the questionable zone jubilee and i know this is not a batman podcast but jubilee for me you know at the time of her introduction was very clearly and i'm sure somebody else has made this observation carrie kelly the robin from what is that dark knight returns dark knight returns thank you Um, you know that in the amalgam universe jubilee and carrie kelly were uh amalgamized uh to be shut the fuck up sidekick of dark claw named 
Sparrow? Ah, no. And that is a nice little dovetail to a character that we'll talk about in issue eight of Legends today. Wow, I had no idea, Josh. That's amazing. So obviously this isn't a new thought <laughs> very clearly, but it always played well to me. I did, The thing about Jubilee at that time was I loved when she was Wolverine sidekick. It was very clearly not a sexual thing. She took care of him when the Reavers had captured him. That was my intro to Jubilee was when, you know, Wolverine and the freshly Japanized Betsy Psylocke were running around Mad Report together, like getting into trouble. And I love that era of like Jubilee being a sidekick. I don't think it, it, it was ever creepy. Once we got into like the Golden Blue teams, Jubilee kind of, she was still in the mix, but she wasn't on an official roster. And I think she kind of got lost in the shuffle a little bit. She spent a lot of time in the Wolverine book on the Golden Blue teams because the Golden Blue team started 281 in Uncanny and obviously right. one in X-Men. This here is coming in at about 298 and around 19, 18 or 19 for adjectiveless X-Men. So we're in that two-year stretch between the relaunch of uh, Jim Lee X-Men and Fatal Attractions, which for me is the sweet spot of Larry Hama Wolverine. And real quick, just to jump back a second, the one thing I do want to say is having literally just left a room where I covered Uncanny 168, Paul Smith was already drawing Kitty in skin-tight clothing with rippled abdomen, looking very sexualized, laying around, throwing her body against Colossus, putting her hand on his chest. I do think that we saw the sexualization of underage characters in the pen of X-Men way earlier than necessarily the Jim Lee era. Because the Paul Smith era, we literally just commented how many characters were sexualized, including Kitty. So I think in a lot of ways, Jubilee represented a return to innocence. And that might even be why she's obsessed with video games. And she's in the kind of comically oversized trench coat. Like, I do think there is something to Kitty growing up early and Jubilee representing innocence in a way, Josh, like you're definitely saying is necessary. And then contrastingly, Kitty kind of represents what Arturo is saying, that need to see people age and grow. You know what's fantastic about a comically oversized trench coat? Because mad, mad fucking props. Um, I don't remember if it was Jim Lee in those early issues. Who, you know, whoever first gave her the trench coat. But a female character in an oversized trench coat will cannot be drawn with, you know, the giant uh, breaks the spine ass sticking out, you know, for those, those yeah. pinup shots with that managed to have both tits and ass at the same time can never happen. You can't do that to our little mall rat when she's wearing, when her signature outfit involves a comically oversized yellow raincoat. Well, I can't think of any better place to jump into this story than at comically oversized raincoat, because as with most Wolverine stories that take place in anywhere that is not the mansion, it always seems like it's raining even when it's not, right? So X-Men Legends number seven through nine in many ways did feature a story that if it had come out at the time, I would have loudly sighed and been like, but what was the point? Why did I read this? But getting to go back now, I found it really charming. I thought it was really just a cute moment in time with a Wolverine that didn't drive me nuts. And if I had any complaint about the whole thing, I just don't think I needed all three villains. I just don't think I needed Omega Red and Sabretooth and Lady Deathstrike. Agreed. But I get it. When is Hama going to get to come back and do this again? 
How did you guys feel about like the luscious return to the golden age of anything can happen because it's Wolverine? Just take an adjective. It's now a bad guy. I okay. I'm I'm enjoying Legends for what it is. Do I wish that an opportunity was taken to fill in some plot holes or give us something with like a little more meat? Yeah, sure, absolutely. But I I'm no longer like expecting that, you know. So so my my expectations have shifted a little bit, and I think Larry Hama did exactly what I would possibly do if I had this opportunity. Pick a <laughs> like literally pick a couple of great toys off the shelf from specifically that era, that like early, early nineties, like ninety-one to ninety-two vibe and because i love that era like and you're saying yeah you could have done without villains like every time somebody else showed up i was so excited like i i I, we're not getting a lot of depth with everybody but we're getting a nice spread of like cameos and a good little rogues gallery and my favorite appearance in this whole damn thing was birdie birdie the the telepath who was like victor creed's valet slash bodyguard slash personal telepathic therapist that would give him the glow and kind of mellow him out and like it was probably a very toxic relationship and whatever but like just seeing her on panel again made my heart sing because can i tell you my favorite thing about your excitement is that she has ever appeared six times before this but she appeared but she appeared in the marvel versus capcom video game no question that catapults her to like this whole other like you know what i mean like there's there's, yeah yes yeah yeah there's there's characters that like if they made it into a toy or made it into a video game like it kind of leveled them up if they made it into the the animated series you know it like leveled them up even though complete agree even though they were brand new at the time i didn't realize there was so few appearances of her but like talk about a character that's right for the plucking so the fact that larry hama just kind of like dug up some some mud and 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 let this bubble up to the surface if it serves just to remind anybody else that she exists like i'm in five of them were him one was lobdell and five were him that's amazing. That's amazing. That's, see that I like. See, I didn't even know that. So this is like Larry Hama coming back and being like, "Oh, let me pluck this character that <laughs> nobody did anything with her, but like obviously he had love for her. It worked for me. Like when she when she popped up, she stole the whole show for me. She like, and you're saying she doesn't have that many appearances, so I recognize that I'm just kind of like, uh, you know, impressing upon like my own feelings on her. Like I just I like her. Well, and so in in the comics continuum you know the the canon the sacred timeline if you will you know this is coming right before wolverine 69 which starts the three-part savage land story with logan jubilee and rogue and then we have one more brief one before fatal attractions ow my bones hurt ow fatal attractions is a big kind of cutoff point for me in terms of like where it kind of starts to change because you get a very, very different, like, dealing with the trauma of that, and then the weird, like... Lumpy mask face. And denosing of Wolverine, and he forgets to speak, and, like, all the... Like, there's some good issues in there. Like, the Electra ones come to mind right after issue 100. Like, there's... But it's a weird... It's not a weird run until kind of... Claremont and then LS and some other people start um, jumping on board in the like 120s. And 
So this, you know, from 31 where it starts, where Hama starts, you know, I would say I think 50 to 75 are really that sweet spot. So it's a shame because characters like that, you know, I think she she kind of got lost after this, but I loved opening this up. I loved the art right away. I thought, you know, this is probably my favorite Billy Tan art. I love the way he handled the kind of preteen and adolescent, not just Jubilee, but also our other new characters, Hino-chan and Yore. This is so hard, like human trafficking comic stories like talk about a delicate issue and I think one of my things about this topic in comics is that the best stories tend to be like the really great stories you never want to read again and the really bad ones you never want to read again like it's a tough topic to handle and you know look at what Larry Hama can do here in terms of you know all agesness or you know handling this the way he did over these three issues without ever veering into cringe or exploitation we could have an enjoyable story about Wolverine and friends breaking up some humic trafficking and saving you know two vulnerable mutant girls it's not easy and it's that Grant Morris statement you know grant morrison is for all intents and purposes the deity we deserve and you know they had that comment about how it's amazing that alan moore just can't seem to write a really powerful story without rape and i understand that it's such a real thing but accurate portrayals of sexual attacks are horrifying and inaccurate portrayals of sexual attacks as you said Josh are pretty offensive and it is an ugly thing and so much of the 90s tried to be real and gritty it's let's go back to golden girls that episode where rose is suddenly addicted to painkillers and then she's not quite over it at the end of the episode she's like oh i'll never be cured i'll always have to deal with this but she obviously never has addiction problems ever again in the rest of the series nor on her appearances on the golden palace empty nest or nurses so i feel like it really is that sort of catch-22 it's why i hate for the most part um addiction metaphors in fiction they're always just so offensive and you gotta play them just right it's where perhaps even my precious grant morrison maybe kick was not the best portrayal of anything i've ever seen (laughs) no and and this did a good like because it's amazing too because this doesn't fall into the doesn't have that like very special issue after school special feel that like you know was that time that guy slapped blossom that, yeah. No, like like that time that Arnold and his buddy, what was his name, Duncan, went to get a, a bike at the bike oh, shop. Oh, and Arnold gets roofied by the creepy old white guy. Well, right. They're they're invited in the back to watch some like racy cartoons and like yeah, and like no, Arnold gets out of there, but like Duncan's like yeah, yo, like the shit that we watched in the eighties. <laughs> like I I will never forget to this day, and it might not have been perfect but it certainly exposed us or showed us some stuff gave us like some sense of stuff that just does not happen nowadays like that Titans versus drug addiction and spider-man and power pack versus bad touch i was just gonna say like i felt like every in the comic version of this in the 80s and 90s every single one in marvel featured a guest appearance by katie power (laughs) 
ew. So, I mean, that's a really delicate line. Like, to, you know, Hama here and Tan on the art were able to craft a story. And like you said, it's not slight, but it deals with a very not slight topic without being horrifying, without being offensive, and without feeling schlocky. Like, it manages to find this kind of sweet spot in the middle that is impressive because... Like, I I don't think this title was made for, you know, reaching into human trafficking stories. (laughs) (laughs) It's a current affair for X-Men. I don't think X-Men Legends really gives you the opportunity to try to do something like that, but they did. Now, I want to pivot from powerful, real, emotional, honest things to fucking dumb shit. So one of the things I loved about this story... I really did think this was way too many villains. It's that YouTube video. It's too many cooks. And yes. it just kept being like, oh, and oh, fuck me. Okay. And so, oh, like. Sabretooth was, was the line for me. Like I was insane. with everyone up until Sabretooth and Sabretooth. I'm like, now just everyone's fucking here. Okay. But that does lead me to a thing. These are three of like Logan's biggest biggies. And I actually, I have love for all of them. And I have defining moments for each of them. It's Victor getting dick shamed at the urinal in New X-Men. It's the first ever appearance of Lady Deathstrike back as Lady Deathstrike in Uncanny 205 after her appearances in Daredevil where she was introduced. Uncanny 205 is a gorgeous, gorgeous piece of comic. And I'm sure I've told you the joke, but I said to my friend one time, why is it that every Barry Windsor Smith issue looks so good? And my friend replied, well, if you drew one issue every 12 months, yours would look pretty good too. And I was like, ah, that's awesome. I would probably say that my favorite Omega Red story is any story without Omega Red in it. So it was I, that time he got a tiger. That wasn't terrible. Okay. No, I'll give you that. That was adorable. I knew right? we were going to be reaching for him, though. He does not have a, like, the, the Omega Red's greatest hits album uh, is a blank CD. Yeah, it's pretty much all B-sides. So... Yeah, I mean, for, okay, wait. So that yeah. was my question. I want to know you guys defend Omega Red. Or... The best. Omega <laughs> I, I Red will. Is an action figure. Omega Red is a cool '90s action figure with little tentacles that you can slide in and out of his arm. That's Omega Red. Period. Omega. Exactly. Omega Red was a new nemesis for Wolverine. So I, he's solely defendable by his design, like his powers, kind of you know specific and the tentacles are but it's cool it's visually really cool and yes there have not been a whole lot of stories and that you know continues to the present like we got we definitely have the nuggets of something happening but yeah we're he's never had his moment but he fucking looks cool you guys he's a great goon he looks like nelson he's i i I, he's an action figure like he's a fun action figure and no one knows what the fuck to do with him yeah well okay now what do you guys think about when you think about deathstrike are you guys man uncanny 205 or are you like i really love that time she appeared in god loves man kills part two i don't love anything about god I I tend to think of her, I really like the Siege Perilous era, kind of where we're going, where the Reavers attack in 249-250, and um, she's there chasing Wolverine, you know, until you get to Moore Island Saga. I tend to kind of think of her in that, and, you know, kind of teaming up with the Ravagers, or the Reavers, and being part of it. I remember a panel really specifically during the Outback era, I'm not sure if it was Sylvester or Jim Lee, I want to say Jim Lee, but there was another character there named Scylla. 
Kayla, and she was like going through the process of getting her mechanical enhancements, but she was in pieces. Like it was, it, it looked gorgeous. And I just remember Deathstrike looking at her like, that's the era that really imprinted on me. And I would say something a little more contemporary that I absolutely love was the purpose she served during Messiah Complex. Like her fight with Wolverine, and I'm talking about Laura back when she was still X-23, Lady Deathstrike versus Laura Kinney in the snow. One of the best fights of all time. I think the artist, I think that was Bacholo, no? Now, you know, I, I really do love that moment at the urinal where Logan does a little big dick bullying because it's okay to bully a bad guy sometimes, right? So when you guys think Creed, where do you guys go? I mean, I think for me, the only other version of Creed I can stand, because I genuinely don't care for Sabretooth. I think he's very sexy, but like, um, I, I just find him kind of like generically problematic. He's a fine character. I never have a problem when he appears, but like, I, I don't need to own every appearance. I just, I enjoy it when he's there. Uh, for me, the only other thing I love is Exiles, Sabes. I love Mr. Creed. He's pretty cool. But mm-hmm. what do you guys think about for Victor? I mean, I know, Arturo, you're like a big Sabretooth kind of guy. Well, so, I mean, I've just always had a thing for villains. Like, villains have just, that's, I'm I'm hardwired like that. So, if it was He-Man, I was into Skeletor and Evil Lynn. If it was, you know, Transformers, I'm into Soundwave and, and Shockwave. Like, it's always villains for me all down the road. So, when everybody was obsessed with Wolverine, I was like, yeah, Wolverine's cool, but Sabretooth. Like, I just, I, I don't know. I That was just kind of like the way it was for me. But he's definitely a horrible character. Like, he's he's done horrible, horrible things. Things. He's he's a, a unrepentant bad guy. Never going to try to like defend that he's a good guy. Although there are glimmers of that, like as we saw in Access, as we see in Age of Apocalypse, as we see in Exiles. So I have hope for him, but I understand that he's fairly irredeemable. But he's a guilty pleasure, and I love him. So I think of him like along the lines of Carnage. Like he's like Cletus Cassidy Wolverine. Mm-hmm. You know, you you had mentioned unrepentance, a good word. He he's a sociopath. He he kills without thought or regard. He has no no care for you know regard for the sanctity of human life Sabretooth has been written very very badly a lot of writers kind of don't know what to do with Sabretooth Sabretooth is not flexible like Wolverine does and so we've had a lot of really bad confusions version of Sabretooth also leave Schreiber that's another Sabretooth that I can get behind yes very physically behind him preferably behind in front of on top of absolutely like the best the best saber tooth and that furry chest man it sells it right (laughs) now okay so we got the you know the logan dad brother son figure we got the, you know, Robo 90s scary guy, and we got the, the female iteration of a Logan villain. My question for you guys is, what Logan villain from this era would you love to get a little bit more of? I recently remember us having a conversation, Arturo, about how great Cyber was as a villain. You know, uneven for sure, but a lot of fun when handled well. Myself, I love a good Wolverine versus Mystique or Wolverine versus Viper kind of story. Give me some Silver Samurai. What about you guys? What Logan villains do you guys just really wish would make a comeback in this sort of story? Oh, I want Spore, the giant glob of sentient cocaine. <laughs> uh, I would like to see maybe Cyber. I would like to see maybe Viper. That was kind of like a fun foil for Wolverine. That's about it. I mean, the other ones that I would have said are, are already in today's issue. <laughs> 
Hey everybody, Nico here one last time. Now, this last segment is the finale of X-Force, and X-Force is such an interesting title because every iteration is just its own thing, and it looks as though the elements that are going to transfer over to the next run of X-Force might not be all of the same ones that were the sort of danglers left in this volume. So we're definitely interested in seeing where that goes, and we hope you guys enjoy this next segment as much as we enjoyed making it. As always, guys, we love making this show for you all year, every year, and we can't wait to start again in 2022. So until next time, enjoy this last segment. Keep those mutant lights lit, those Krakoan gateways open. I'm Nico. You guys can find me at Nico Action. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And we will see you on the other side. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Exodus for Podcast, the show where we take a look at comics, mutants, magic, and marvels week after week through their many surfing titles. I'm Nico, and you guys can <laughs> check me out on Twitter and Instagram at Nico Action. And that's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. Hi, and I'm Steve. Hello. Uh, it's me. I'm... <sighs> Man, I'm at Twitter at Howdy Duda. That's H O W D Y D U D A. Man, you killed me with that sort of thing. <laughs> I'm TK. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at X Nate X Gray X. And I'm Raven, aka Dame Red Bento. D A M E R E D B E N T O. You can find me over on TikTok, Twitter, sometimes Instagram. I don't know. I'm all over the place. Just come start a conversation. I got lots to say. You know, speaking of talking back to the audience and the audience not exactly talking back, we're here to talk about the final two issues of X-Force. Now, I say the final two issues because it's a little bit difficult to pull issue 26 out of issue 25, but we are here to primarily discuss X-Force number 26, written by Benjamin Percy, with art by Robert Gill. Now, the cover is, of course, by Joshua Kassara, which gives me some complicated feelings. I am a pretty big fan of Kassara's work on this title, so not having him, you know, but having him on the cover, it definitely left me feeling away. Guru FX provided the colors on the interior, with VCs Joe Carmagna on letters, Tom Muller pulling in that design, and if everything is as we expect it, this is Jonathan Hickman's final appearance as head of X on an issue of X-Force. Also, I just want to make sure to go out of my way and mentioned Dean White was the colorist on the cover by Josh Kassara. Okay, all of that out of the way, house cleaning, real good time. TK, you were part of our Christmas Spectacular X-Jam, and I am super excited to have you back. So my first question is, TK, what is your relationship with Expo? With Expo? Mm-hmm. Well, X-Force, but like okay. TK, Expo. Like as an exfoliation? Or- what is my relationship with X-Force? I read it, and I have a lot of doubts about where it's going, basically, the entire time it's been running on Krakoa. Oh, cool. So, big same. <laughs> I say, consistent take. Consistent take. There are times where I read it, and I am absolutely in love. And there was a moment in this one that really got me, but then there were three or four moments in this one where I was screaming at the book, wondering what the fuck was happening. Yeah, yeah. I don't feel so crazy. Big same. You know, one of the things I love about this show is getting to hear people's opinions on these titles evolve over time. Now, Raven, you've been with us since Ten of Swords. And Steve, I don't believe you joined too far after. And X-Force has, for all intents and purposes, with the exception of Jean Grey leaving the title to keep being in it, I guess? (laughs) Right? I don't think X-Force has changed too much surrounding Ten of Swords. And I was wondering how you guys felt about that well gene was clearly tired of having too much of a role and only being in here she she really seems to prefer only being in here to be referred to in relation to wolverine at least that's how it's been 
She's a friend of the team. She shows up when she wants. Right. She, she's like that. She's like that. That cover all like coworker, and you're like, hey, could you work this department for a day? And they're like, yeah, yeah, that's cool. Hey guys, hi, yeah. No, I'm leaving now. No, I'm not. No, I'm not here. No, I'm not, I'm not back. Here. I'm not no. back. <laughs> yeah, I I like that. There's continuity here because I it was I think the second most recent issue of Wolverine where she showed up just to be disrespected by Wolverine to her face. Right. <laughs> So we're getting a through line. And like, wasn't the line something like, I would rather be covered in piss than yeah. go up and sing karaoke for you? And I just want to be like, any man who's not willing to stand up, any person who's not willing to stand up and sing a song for someone in whatever capacity that person is capable of showing singing a song. You know what I mean? Because like, not everybody wants to get up and sing, right? So, but like, we can all sing a song in our own way. And the bottom line is, Logan is not above karaoke. That's one thing. Okay, you know what? That's one thing. Ben Percy's Logan just doesn't enjoy joy. And that's something that definitely gets to me sometimes. I love what a gruff motherfucker he is, but I don't understand how this guy who's like, ah, surfing, freedom, is like, I would rather drink a beer bottle full of piss than sing karaoke for you, woman I love. Like, can I, can that, I just, no, I'm so, with Wolverine. I'm with Wolverine. <laughs> You're not getting knows. me on stage to sing. Ugh. He's just vacillating so much between this whole, like, I'm an older and, like, intimate person who understands the ins and outs of having difficult emotions about women, but also I'm gonna just be an absolute child to the one I'm with at a karaoke bar. I don't understand. He goes back and forth between acting like a complete child, pissing in Magneto's helmet, yelling at Gene for no reason. Then the next issue, he's like, listen, sometimes you just gotta, you just gotta pound back. <laughs> and it's so yeah. weird because the Cohen, uh, like in the Dawn of X, it ended with him in such a joyous place, like that panel of him, Scott, and Gene. Yes. Uh, and then the stuff in X-Men soon after, I was like, oh, this is a, Wolverine is finally happy and we're like, we're acknowledging the Scott and Gene thing in a way that like everybody is good with. I was like, we're going to see Wolverine finally get some joy out of his life. And then when he's the focus of books, that's gone. I cannot imagine this Logan being the one who sleeps next to Scott and Gene and on the moon. Like I literally, exactly. you're so right. This is a different Logan than the one who is in a throuple for sure. My Logan is somewhere between the Claremont Miller mini and the Aaron and Nick Bradshaw Wolverine and the X-Men. Like for me, my Logan is this dynamic in pain very sexual warrior who also is a teacher and a good guy and a vuncular. And, you know, like I have a lot of good memories of the uncle that gave me beers and helped me play poker. Like I have good memories of that uncle and you know, he was the best. And Logan to me is that I'm, I'm kind of a Quentin choir, like for all of the ways on this show that I try to present myself as polished and lovely. Anybody who's in our group (laughs) discord knows that I'm kind of a fucking freak. And like, I'm usually just an accident waiting for a place to happen. Right. So I'm a delightful mess. And I, just i think a guy like me could learn a lot from a logan like the logan i love that that's somewhere between mentoring kitty and mentoring quentin and mentoring jubilee those but like this logan x-force logan i don't know who can be better for loving him yeah that's a very reasonable question to ask and gene keeps showing up and doing it and the result is i mean the the thing i loved in this issue was her 
going to Quentin, acknowledging her relationship with Logan, and telling Quentin, like, he is somebody who will always love you, because that is true. Um, we've established a really good rapport between the two of them, and Logan has been there for Quentin and is a mentor for Quentin. Yeah. But look, she the Gene in this. Like, it's it just keeps coming up that Gene is his ride or die, and he's, like, almost annoyed by her. Yeah, it's, it makes less sense as time goes on. When she's like, yeah, sometimes we fight, and sometimes I come back around, sometimes he comes back around. She's like, codependence is unhealthy. I'm like, Gene, that's you, right? Yeah, I like, know. I was like, wait, what? <laughs> Who? What? What? But Gene is so good at no, 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 not me, you. Right. And that's like, I don't <laughs> well, know. I mean, that's... she was trained by Professor X, so. <laughs> and like, I wonder if that's like a hallmark of like my whiteness. Like, I sometimes wonder, because like, I mean this, like this inability to be wrong, where <laughs> it's never me, it's always you. Because mm. I, I know I'm a victim of that, my, like of my own doing it. And yeah. I wonder, is that like an inability to be wrong from the cultural perspective of white privilege? And I do recognize it's that. I also think it comes from the perspective of being a Latino man who is tired of being told he's wrong. And so now I refuse to fucking be wrong. And I ultimately also think it comes from being a snarky queer. <laughs> and like, hell no, I am not going to go down first. Like, it's we're all going to go all down. Angles. Right? So like, but I feel like that's even something that you can sort of apply different levels to and i kind of feel like jeans mm, but not me in so many ways is like annoyingly masculine of her i mean i can't deny that have that's you thing. met jean gray yeah i, I mean, mean I literally in this throuple she's the top like yeah mm-hmm. exactly big and like big time i mean cyclops is like sub sub at this point which i'm living for every day it comes up <laughs> big but, phoenix you know, energy exactly yeah Wolverine only bottoms. Yeah. Oh no, I think Wolverine has a really good time fucking Scott. Like I really do. Oh yeah, that's actually oh, yeah, I agree totally with that. I feel like, Scott. and I bet sometimes, like when Scott's feeling real dirty, he's like, "Put the Weapon X helmet on me." Right? Like, <laughs> and that's, give me metal underwear. Ah, uh, chastity play. Oh man, that's what the C in Cyclops stands for. Wait, no, it stands for Cyclops. Anyway, oh, no, I so that's intended for cuckold. <laughs> Not anymore. Like, he's embracing yeah. it. I feel yeah, like... he's totally into it. Well, and, like, you know, outside of humorously approaching the subject, because I know everybody in this room is brilliant and sex positive. So I know we're, no, we're making jokes, right? But, like, oh, yeah. you know, in, in many ways, what had been a very negative representation of thruple dynamics as cheating mm-hmm. has evolved to a place where, you know, that moment where Scott, you know, but Scott Summers in a Speedo, like, that's yeah. like... Mm-hmm. that moment lives in my heart as like one of the things i always need oh absolutely i'm an openly poly man and i'm very proud of my my love and my my relationships and like you know they're on the show and like (laughs) i'm proud of that and that moment from scott and logan was this like we've all had that struggle to get to like a place of personal acceptance and that was that moment for me and i you know if scott is still in some way being cucked i think he's into it (laughs) oh yeah no it's totally consensual Nico, you're about to make me say something I didn't want to have to say on an X-Force podcast, but you you know how much I love Ben Percy's Wolverine. You know how much I think that Ben Percy absolutely fucking nails Logan every time he goes for it. But these latest issues and the, the way that I've been seeing Logan's personality de- like regress over time, I gotta say, when you asked who 
like my Wolverine is, my first thought went to Hickman. Like, Ooh, yeah. Because that's what Hickman brings every time is that sensitivity, that throuple energy, the kind of playfulness, but while still remaining like kind of a, a loner and hyper-masculine dude. It's like, I would, I would like to lean back more into what Hickman focused on with Wolverine in Unlimited and in X-Men. I completely agree. Mine is Morrison's and Hickman's because Morrison, I think, really was starting. I mean, he didn't have the, the Scott stuff in there, but he was doing a very good job of complexifying all the relationship for all three of them allowing scott and gene to admit there were serious problems which i really think we need to return to but that's a separate yeah issue that i think that's where this all started was in morrison's and you did see a wolverine that was incredibly sensitive and sensitive to scott too i mean he wanted to be scott's friend and he wanted to support him assault on weapon plus I exactly mean, he literally I says there's nobody better in a firefight than scott summers and that thread i think carried on in very weird ways through the lost decade plus but has come back to where it was always meant to be mm, yeah the lost decade thanks for bringing that back <laughs> oh i always that's how i i loved that reference i know it's really i loved it and i i can i hold it near and dear to me we needed that we needed permission from somebody in the x office to yes. talk about it that way I and do. we've got it and you know i'm gonna make a bold claim about astonishing for a second astonishing isn't like a giantly flawed thing but it's four individual moments in response to a run that is a million moments if you think about it new x-men is literally a full year of school that's the plot of the book it is a full year and then it jumps forward 127 years and astonishing x-men can literally be timed as 12 hours 12 hours 24 hours 36 hours and it's literally four moments that are a response to a year. And it's, you know, it's kind of like the opposite of Rent, where the first act is almost in real time and the second act is a full year. You know, it's kind of the opposite. And it's, anyway, that lost decade was because they were not ready to be brave enough after Morrison. And it is exactly like Hickman's Wolverine is like the next thought after Morrison's. Ooh, that's like, super interesting. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. Well, I mean, my my Wolverine is is... Okay, I grew up with the kind of old school Wolverine, you know, like, <laughs> we're talking, I read stuff from like the 1980s, 1990s first, went through the cartoon where you have Logan crying at a picture of Gene, <laughs> like, you know, that level of Wolverine, and then I got skyrocketed into basically uh, Kazar, so buckets of blood, <laughs> I'm like, okay i know i know this one and then i got to see a more nuanced wolverine who actually had feelings and had actually you know gone to therapy and done some work on himself and i'm like oh okay this is a new wolverine but i kind of like it so it's it's weird i just keep getting kind of slingshotted between so many different extremes of wolverine i'm like could we please could, could we just go to the sensitive wolverine who's actually done some fucking therapy and worked on himself and is like more cohesive and and self-aware please because i like like that one that shows growth <laughs> we haven't even talked about his kids black tom as always you're looking fly iconic i love you sexy daddy roger you, dodger Ten thousand percent a superior version of doctor strange's costume uh, this is costume he, is he dracula is he not dracula play it yeah there's, there's literally a part where dracula looks exactly like black tom in that 
happy. He's wonderful. He's sweet. I don't see why so many people are just so GD worried about him because he always seems to be very mentally cohesive when I see him on panel. I'm, I'm concerned for my boy Black Tom because other issues of X-Force have been people being like, what's going on with Black Tom? What's going on with Black, Black Tom? I'm like, I'm, I'm just a little worried about his health. Well, also, we had that issue with him and Beast and the little dude, and it seemed yeah. like <laughs> stuff was very wrong. Like, beyond the little dude, it really seemed like both of them were going off the rails. And that has not been revisited. Was it in Inferno, the data page about how he's hallucinating, Black Tom's hallucinating? Yes, yeah. Uh, again, I mean, that might be like a different timing thing, but we're not really seeing that here. X-Force Black Tom is on point in every way, except that one weird issue, which I still really want to know what was going on there. Oh, totally, yeah. I, I, um, this this Black Tom is like the least cartoony he's been in a long, long time. Exactly. Ben Percy has this magical perspective where he, I would think Ben Percy would write the best classic Hellblazer. Like I'm talking one to 300 Hellblazer because he goes to this sort of lunaticy, silly, magical Neil Gaiman-y place. Right. <laughs> talking but, about when all of a sudden it's all like Arthurian green man stuff. Yes. 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 I like that. And at this <laughs> At the same time, he's like, I'm Garth Ennis. Look at all the penises on these guns. And, like, <laughs> it's really Garthy sometimes, right? Like, it's. There's nothing more Garthy than Ben Percy's Wolverine. He is a Garth Ennis character. Yeah, because sometimes it's a hyper-stylization of a hyper-stylization. I just feel sometimes like I don't get this book. Uh, I, feel, oh, I always feel like I don't get this book. Right. I don't get what the book wants to do. Like, I get what the book wants to do, which is, like, kind of be a Wolverine book, but also kind of be about these <laughs> war crimes. But, like, it's it's so it's so meandering, and it does not seem to have a direction. And I wonder if a lot of that is because of the huge delays with the Reign of X after the gala... And the fact that it has to it has to tee up to X Lives and Deaths of Wolverine, which I feel like is like going to be Ben Percy's magnum opus as a writer, maybe. And I'm very excited for that, but it, it does feel like this part of X Force and of Wolverine have been like treading water to get there. You know, mm-hmm. it might have been smart to pull some of these plot lines into some to spin them off into other books, like everything with Mikhail and Colossus was from here and now is completely like yeah i need that back ignored. i have to wait till april to find Assu- oh my god right assuming it assuming that it is in this because now colossus is on, on the, the quiet, quiet council, council. Right. Yep. and you yeah. know with, that's going to be is that going to be immortal x-men that deals yeah. with that but yeah i mean there's you know terra verde is also still a looming threat that was presented in X-Force that has been around in multiple books that is still not dealt with. Well, let's, let's jump to a second for one second about something that got dealt with that I'm not sure how I feel about, right? So we have that opening segment and we, we talked about how cute black Tom looks and we should always just, everybody snaps for Sage, right? (laughs) Everybody should just snaps for Sage all the time. She's a spectacular queen and we get Domino and she's underwater. And I love, I love submerged Nina. I don't know. Maybe I guess I'm I'm into it. It works. And like one of the things is when X-Force works, it just works in a way that is X-Force. It deserves its plaudits. It deserves its encouragement. 
and I like those moments. But something I certainly think threw me off in re- like the book felt like X Force. It's exactly what you were saying, Steve. Everything was going, everything was working, and then all of a sudden, Quentin's like, "No, Logan, you're being a little piss bitch because you got your heart stomped on by a surfer queen." And that's not the same thing as the cuckoos. And I'm like, kid, you're behaving like a urinal cake, okay? (laughs) And here's the problem with it. I don't think either one of them comes off attractively. Mm -mm, And I make this joke to my friends all the time, which is, hi, I need you to think about the story you just told me. Do you think you came off in a light that you would want other people to consider you in when you told that story. Now I need you to think about why you would ever want to tell it again, right? Like sometimes people need to hear that. But it doesn't start that way because when they're on the beach and Logan goes to Clinton, it's actually a really nice moment. And they could have ended it there with, you know, just Logan being kind of a dad to him and then them going on this mission. It's in the middle of the mission when Clinton starts telling Logan that he's simped for the surfer chick and doesn't know what he's talking about. That's where it goes off the rails. It feels like this issue works in reverse in so many ways. Like all the beats are in the wrong order. I am absolutely exhausted by Logan finding women that he's met a day ago and been like, but I love her. I love you. And I got to save her. Like, it feels like he's mansplaining, like, thrill seeking to this woman <laughs> what oh the hell God. he's like you know what i it know what it's like worst. to be built in a lab and she's like dude i'm just trying to get my rocks off on some waves you must have wanted me to save you because you you told me where to find you it's like bitch he's so no. obsessed and it is a bad look and he does it all the time i'm so sick of it i'm so sick and of she, it. even still she gives him that great line of like if it was real to you it was real <laughs> yes uh she actually gets a lot of good dialogue i really yeah I don't know. It is a certain level of Logan is acting like Quentin Choir that Mm -hmm. I don't I want Quentin acting like Logan to better himself. I don't want Quentin to be Logan, but I want him to take things from Logan. I'm not saying I need him to manifest telekinetic claws, although if we come back and Quentin has telekinetic claws, my whole world, right? But so That's gonna that's gonna happen again. Great. That that's in the arsenal now, and especially with the close bond that they have absolutely going to have telekinetic claws again. I just feel like this is not, I don't know. I really actually even loved the metal surfboard and I defended it because I do think the metal surfboard is adorable, but the like perfect. actually, Oh yeah, no, but like, okay. So let's talk about the shark for the a shark minute. Was oh, the book jumping the shark at the end. Well, the book jumped the shark. Like literally, literally jumped, jumped the, the shark, shark, went through the shark. I just like, especially because we're having all this conversation about how weird and off the rails this book is and meandering. And it is very odd that they chose to, at the very end, put a literal shark in. Yeah, that Logan would jump, not over right. through. Right. It just feels like somebody was like, okay, I recognize that this book is completely fucking unhinged. I will Here say that's, that's the beginning of, in this issue, like Guru FX's like masterpiece with the colors. Like, honestly, you can just enjoy that remaining two pages that's true these pinks and oranges are absolutely stunning yeah and even with quentin saying and hang 10 which i don't know that i'll ever recover from oh my god oh man why is that happening to me why is it happening <laughs> to me this really is like a weird like i don't yeah this is one of those weird episodes of tv where they run out and they all go to hawaii yeah yep this is like I x-force expected, point break yeah i expected like a gidget level like bonfire <laughs> like what the shit jeans just on the beach like my hero <laughs> well, 
Now, let me ask you guys a question that's actually really important here. One of the comments that we've made about the narrative of X-Force that has made X-Force really difficult for us at times is X-Force, as well as X-Men in general, had become so progressive that at one point there were multiple X-Books that featured exclusively or hyper-primarily women. There was an iteration of X-Force that was all women with the exception of Puck, which, if you are familiar with how hot they draw Puck now... My sugar cane. And how they write oh, him, too. Oh, God, right? Oh, Puck, what a gift. Oh, God, he's so good. He's so good in everything. And he's like he's like IRL Kyle from the show. <laughs> cool. That is like what IRL Kyle is like around to be around and looks like. He's so cute, right? So then we come to this book where we've said that one of the complications of this narrative is specifically how women are so frequently on the outside of the understanding of the central narrative. One of the other things we've also said is that we feel like some of the important elements that created a cultural context for X-Force were lost in the course of the title, such as the previously mentioned Russian storyline. So hold on. This book ends with no Russians, and it ends with no women having a role of creative agency, right? Like, women do things in this issue, but they play positions, they play roles, they don't actually move the story, they don't have first-person narrative perspective. They are essentially as useful as shouting, Krakoa, do this. And... I mean, it's kind of like sexy mutant lamp syndrome. This issue as the final issue of a series that saw the alienation of Domino from her own identity and memories at the cost of a man's decision to take care of her, that man who was then sidelined out of the title, understandably, not necessarily through Ben Percy's fault. But I think what I'm getting it at at is, as much as Wolverine and Quentin Quire are two of my favorite characters of all time, this narrative is divorced of representation of anything but identities of hyper-masculine anger and focused through white men is that part of what's making this final issue feel so saccharine yes yeah Period. Uh, uh, totally it is something i could have done without honestly and yeah. i i don't know how i i'm a reader who is gonna pick up x-force i am a ben percy fan at this point i enjoy a lot of these characters so in april i'm gonna pick up x-force i don't know how many other people would if this was the last issue to tide them over till then and more importantly I- know if you could recommend it to i can't yeah (laughs) it's very difficult i try and i look at this preview for april the only woman is sage and i am in love with what's going on with sage but i am not confident that that is going to be a central story and that we're going to see her with that creative agency sage domino and gene all could and should have a place in this i mean gene i guess technically now not because of x-men but she keeps showing up so there is room for some really good women on this team to take front and center but it doesn't seem like it's going to happen yeah i really had high hopes for that originally when we had gene and domino and sage together on a team three women who do not interact a lot but it's cool to think about the idea that they would yeah you know sage and domino strategizing how to run x-force and how to run missions and yet instead they only interact through wolverine right. yeah 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 it's like they have so much good potential but it's never realized and it's like you're just missing this huge opportunity because you have such strong and wonderful personalities that are competent and forceful and and there and it's just they're not being realized and i simply can't believe that both sage and domino would see what's going on with beast and not 
Right? Not stop this shit right in its tracks. And the fact that Gene knows about it and is just like, I'm done reprimanding you. Yeah, which on the one hand I get because they have a very long history together and she literally is probably sick of him, but we need to see that play out a lot more. Yes. Because it's not just Gene walking away from him. It wouldn't just be Gene walking away from no, him. It needs exactly. to be Gene saying, I wash my hands of this because I can't deal with you anymore, little brother. But mm-hmm. I'm calling in Sage, and you're getting dealt with. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. hard for me to believe that Gene would just let that go and let it keep going. Like, just because her hands are not dirty, like, no, she would, the Gene I remember would put a stop to it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the Gene from X-Men Red of... Oh, God. Of, <laughs> ...would put a stop to it, and that is our most recent pre, you know, this Gene. Teen Gene would have put a stop to it. A hundred percent Teen Gene would have, but Teen Gene is a different animal. I feel like a pair of jeans would put a stop to it. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> we're hitting the... Hank already. Yeah, like, something that, it sort of mirrors something that came up in the recent episode where we discussed some death of Doctor Strange stuff, where we said that, you know, you really do reach a point where for so many people not to understand that somebody is a superhero, like, these brilliant people have to be stupid. Mm-hmm. Like, and you purposely surround these characters with these brilliant supporting characters who are so amazing. And you want me to believe that this brilliant supporting character who's help- capable of helping Spider-Man and is so smart that Peter needs his help over anyone else. You're telling me that guy who's also friends with Peter Parker can't figure out that they're the same guy? Mm-hmm. That seems impossible to me. It's kind of like embarrassing almost in a way, right? It, it makes the character seem kind of stupid. And I think the other side of that is how frequently storylines are, how did we not see this coming? Well, no, you fucking did. And like, that was literally an element of the story. They literally purposely had you look away. And it's made so much more complex by the nature of how these narratives are handled. For instance, when Daredevil started to quote-unquote go evil because Andy Diggle was writing, the narrative was that everybody in Hell's Kitchen saw him going dark and needed to have an intervention. It was very similar to the intervention that was had in Bendis's uh, run as well. Then there's runs where one day the superhero just wakes up evil and everybody realizes they've been seeing it all along. It just sort of makes you look foolish. At this point, whatever Beast does is on their hands. Oh yeah, absolutely. Like, how do you watch Beast just go mad scientist off the rails and say nothing? And I don't believe that Charles and Eric who love this mutant CIA so much Mm -hmm. would stand for the sloppiness of this. I don't, I think they would not, I think they'd be okay with a well-executed version of this plan. Oh yeah. I think Eric would never. Yeah. You're absolutely right. I think Charles could let a lot go, but I think Eric Uh, absolutely never. Yeah. Well, I mean, Charles can let a lot go morally, but, (laughs) and I mean, and in terms of his kids being sloppy, that's true. He, he, he will let them be sloppy, but Eric absolutely would not. And this, this terrible plot, it's off the rails from a writing perspective. Like, I don't know where it is. I don't know where it's going. I don't know what the point is. But in continuity, it's also just gone completely off the rails and nobody is stepping in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Speaking of off the rails, there's something that really bothered me in this issue. And I feel like I have to bring it up. It's, it's like just driving me crazy. 
Is it the ugly babies? Uh, no, that's that's fine. I'm used to ugly babies in comics. Anybody, <laughs> know, you know, but like, it's the bluebird. <laughs> this is like the oh my god! <laughs> Thank you. In so long, I just have to I, I have to pick this apart just for a second. We cut through the skies in the blackbird. Makes sense to pilot the seas in the bluebird. How? Yes. How? 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 Is it because the sea is blue because the skies are black? Is it? That's, I, I exact same questions. I, I I literally had this exact same thought. Also, the, I mean, I really like that there's a ruby quartz bridge screen for Cyclops to shoot through if he ever uses the submarine. That's really nice. The design is really cool. But also, they've used it for like other aerial birds in the past. Like they had a blackbird and a bluebird at one point in like a. Yeah. You know, it's one of those things where, like, I sometimes get a little bit thrown by how they they miss the continuity. There was that joke in Marauders a couple of months ago where it was like, we've never had to face this. Or was it in, um, I think it was actually the Treehouse X-Men in Dugan's X-Men where they were like, the X-Men have never had to face the New York Zoning Board. No, literally, that was one of the last kitties. Yeah, no, they have actually done that. That's so wild. Because, like, who would expect that? I don't don't blame Jerry at all for that because, like, who would expect that that had actually happened before? (laughs) 